saying, not such a run, I think it's about two months for as we talk about maybe some of the places you kind of get a visual idea of um, what, where things are, more or less. So, so far we've been through, um, uh, we've covered the apostles uh, dying out, uh, the Neronian persecution, we've talked about uh, the fall of Jerusalem, we've talked about, we've uh, met some of the uh, apostolic fathers, we've um, gotten into persecution. The last couple of weeks we were talking about some of the uh, persecutions of the second century. We met Justin Martyr. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to move on into the next sort of theme and it becomes also kind of an important topic to hit even in the chronology of history because this theme gets sort of gets stronger, so to speak, in the second century. And so this is, today we're going to deal with heresies. So this is heresies. I'm, I'm kind of titling this lesson Heresies round one, because there are a lot of rounds that the church has with heresies all throughout history. Um, this is an early round that the church went through, and a particular one particular heresy or, or genre of heresies that we're going to look at today. All right, so let's start. Uh, let's just begin by turning in our Bibles to Acts chapter eight. And um, as you turn there, I'm going to go ahead and start reading for time's sake, but we're going to read through uh, Acts 8, 4 through 24. Let's go ahead and start. All right. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what, what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike, in the sign of himself. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly in Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed to the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay, I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord, that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon you. Simon, the sorcerer of Samaria, is known to history as Simon Magus, M-A-G-U-S, Magus. Magus is the Latin word for magician. Um, Y'all are, of course, 
Well, equipment is the plural form of it. The plural form is magi. And I think it's uh, Latin even got it from Persian, I believe. Um, but in any case, Simon the Magician, more or less, is what it means. This story in Acts chapter 8, I've, written, I've read it from the New American Standard Version. Um, there's a number, number of other versions, especially modern ones, that I think do a good job with it. The reason I did that is because I think the, this version captures the sense of what Simon said to Peter a little better than the King James Version or the New King James Version would do. Um, in the King James, when you're reading it, you might come away thinking that Simon sincerely requested Peter to pray for his soul. But I don't think that's likely what happened. I think what happened is he his his response was a little more off-putting in a manner that is consistent with the way that the Nazbe renders it. According, and the reason I think that is because according to Justin Martyr and a handful of other early church fathers, Simon Magus never really repented and believed the gospel. <coughs> in fact, one father says quite plainly that Simon, quote, feigned belief at Samaria there when he was with uh, Philip and Peter. So after his encounter with Peter, what we know from extra-biblical sources in history, uh, Simon left Samaria, traveled around the Roman Empire, peddling his magical arts, as well as a mysterious, syncretistic religion of his own making. He picked up a woman named Helena, and went on claiming that he himself was God. He also claimed that he had already appeared among the Jews. He, Simon, had appeared among the Jews as Christ, and was appearing among other nations as the Holy Spirit, and that through Helena, all creation had been formed. This is what Simon went around saying. Eventually, Simon and Helena ended up in Rome, and his magic continued to all fascinate people, the Emperor Claudius himself is reported to have had a statue of Simon made. And uh, the Roman Senate even at one point voted to deify him. They deified a lot of people. You can kind of imagine um, what his influence was like. So throughout, throughout church history, uh, the church has really maintained an ongoing war with heresy. Uh, and when I say heresy here, I'm especially kind of emphasizing the kind of false doctrine that masquerades as being Christian. Uh, not just some any old false doctrine, but one that says in some sense this is what the church believes and this is what we Christians believe, but it's really false. And, and of course, heresy over the centuries has taken on a lot of different forms. In the second century, what we want to deal with today, one of the biggest and most damaging heresies to come out after the departure of the apostles was the heresy of Gnosticism. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have heard of Gnosticism before. It's uh, The word comes from the Greek word gnosis, of course, which means knowledge. What the Gnostics believed was that there's this particular deep, mysterious truth that they, the Gnostics, had knowledge of. And this knowledge was itself key to ultimately attaining more or less what their brand of salvation was, if you will. And the vast majority of, furthermore, the vast majority of ordinary human beings, according to them, had no access to this special knowledge. Now, Gnosticism had a lot of different schools. There were different people went different ways with it, and we're going to kind of just get into a little bit briefly what more or less it summed up as. But one of the things, some of the 
early church fathers believed that uh, Simon Magus was, in a sense, the father of the entire movement of Gnosticism. They kind of consider him to have been the, the source of it. Um, in fact, Eusebius uh, says, quote, according to tradition, Simon was the original author of all heresies, unquote. Now, whether or not Simon really was the author of Gnosticism is, is still debated. People kind of go different ways on that today. Um, but you can kind of see it if you're familiar with what Simon said and you're familiar with what the Gnostics said. You can see some parallels, and you can definitely imagine how what Simon, uh, how Simon's ideas could have been the uh, sort of precursors to what eventually became Gnosticism. But Gnosticism as a real strong force really emerged in the second century, mid to late second century, I want to say. And uh, obviously Simon was sometime before that. Now regardless of whether Simon was the author, uh, I think what is very clear is the fact that he was doing the same thing in pattern that the Gnostics did and many heretics since then have done. In your bibliographies, which I hand out today, there's a handful of, of, of uh, sources here. Dr. Frank, uh, Frank James um, gave a lecture in the 90s, and I, I'm indebted to him. One of the things he observed was that the second century Roman Empire was a synergistic time, is what he called it. The Roman Empire was, of course, a pluralistic society. You had all these different people groups that were mixing together, and they all had different you know, various religions and ways of seeing the world. And of course, naturally, some people would begin to start mixing things together. Um, Dr. James, in turn, quotes another guy named Philip Schaff, who's also in your bibliography there, um, a real classic, he's a kind of a classic authority on church history. Um, he quotes Philip Schaff is arguing that in this time in the Roman Empire, there is also uh, Eastern philosophy and occultism was also beginning to kind of make inroads into the Greco-Roman world. So in summary, what the Gnostics did is they, they fit into their pluralistic world quite well. They borrowed what they would um, from Christianity, Greco-Roman paganism, Eastern philosophy and occultism, and to all of that they sprinkled in some of their own imagination. Now what, was, what resulted was a set of cultic beliefs that deceived and drew away many, many people in the church at that time. So what did the Gnostics actually believe? Um, we want to summarize that a little bit. But before we get into what they believe, I do want to introduce you to one other early church father. And his name is Irenaeus. Irenaeus, I-R-E-N-A-E-U-S. A uh, very prominent second century father. He was born in Asia in the second century, and somewhere along the way he became a Christian. Um, it's, it's believed, it's, it's reported that he probably knew, or at least was taught by Polycarp. And anyhow, like, he eventually made his way from Asia over to Gaul, or modern day France. Um, and apparently, when he was there, he became an elder in the church of Lyon. So if you remember from two weeks ago, we covered a, a major persecution that happened in Lyon in the second century. Well, as events would have it, I guess as, as God arranged it in one way or another, Irenaeus was fortunate enough to escape that persecution. Right before the riots began, he was actually dispatched from the church in Lyon. They dispatched him to Rome to take a letter to the bishop of Rome. And that letter was discussing some issues about 
of the heresy of Montanism. Montanism is another heresy we're going to get to eventually, but not today. Um, and so he was actually outside of Lyon when the persecution happened, so he was one of the survivors. Uh, later on, Irenaeus was made bishop of Lyon. So uh, we're now at the. How do you spell that? Lyon? L Y O N? L Y O N S. Is that France? Yeah. Oh, same. Same Lyon. Yep. Right. Here in, they don't have it on this map, but. Yeah. Run the goal. Yeah. Um, so he was made Bishop of Lyon, and again, in the late 2nd century, what was going on is now, at this point, Gnosticism is becoming very influential, it's kind of taking off, and Irenaeus is deeply concerned. So what Irenaeus does at this time is he writes a book, in fact, he writes five books, all part of a multi-volume work, and the name of that book is called The Detection and Overthrow of False Knowledge, or more commonly, what um, most people know it as today is just quote, against heresies, specifically against heresies by Irenaeus. The book is really significant because uh, in its time, it was uh, really the first of its kind. Up to that point, there was no other work that could compare with this book in its length and scope. Um, in fact, for, for that reason, some people like to think of against heresies as like the first, uh, uh, what do we call it, systematic theology. Um, Really what, he's, what Irenaeus is doing is he's not so much setting about systematizing Christian doctrine as he is trying to respond to heresies. And so what he does in that book is he, he researches the heresies. He's probably one of our major sources for what Gnosticism was. He kind of exposes what they believe, and then in response to that, he explains the orthodox teachings of Christianity as a demonstration of the errors of Gnosticism. All right, so back to our question, what did the Gnostics believe? Um, as I said, there's a, a lot of different branches, or there are a lot of different brands or schools of Gnosticism, and kind of each Gnostic cult leader took his own tack on it. Uh, they had, all kind of had their own patented approach, so to speak. But maybe just to kind of summarize what they were getting at, we can begin where Irenaeus begins. Irenaeus begins with the most famous and influential of the Gnostics. He wasn't the first Gnostic, but he was probably the most influential. And his name is Valentinus, B-A-L-E-N-T-I-N-U-S. He was one of the best known and, and widespread Gnostic teachers, uh, had some of the most widespread Gnostic teachings in the second century. And in some ways, they're kind of representative of how the Gnostic teachers thought in general. So what did he believe? Uh, first of all, again, I want to say I'm indebted a little bit to uh, Dr. James and the bibliography. When I first read Irenaeus kind of describing what Gnosticism was, I got dizzy. It, it was weird. I'm like, what is this guy talking about? And I'm usually, I kind of think I'm a pretty good reader. I can usually wrap my mind around what the author's getting at. But I really didn't kind of get it, kind of get it, so to speak, until Dr. I listened to Dr. James' lecture. And he boiled it down really well. So a lot of what I'm giving today is kind of influenced by that. There is um, some things that after I listened to Dr. James and kind of went back to Irenaeus, a uh, few points where I like, oh, I don't know if he was right on that. So I kind of think, might, if you listen to these lectures, you might hear some disagreements, just minor ones between us. If you do hear that, just go with what Dr. James says, because he's read a lot more than I have. If you don't listen to Dr. James, just go with what I say. Um, 
Um, anyways, this is, it doesn't really matter. Just boil it down to, it's weird, okay? This is what Valentinus believed. Valentinus believed that there is a supreme, pre-existent, the supreme being is a pre-existent, eternal, invisible, infinite, and incomprehensible. So far, so good, right? Um, attributes of God. Valentinus' name for this supreme being is, it translates as the death. Or as Dr. James has it, the abyss. I'm just going with death today. Now, the death exists together with this female attribute of himself called intent. Now, intent and death beget children, so to speak, and they make emanations forth of other spiritual beings called eons. The eons, uh, the first eon is called intellect, and he's also masculine. And then he's likewise is paired with this sort of feminine counterpart, Eon, called Truth. And then intellect and truth go on and emanate yet more Eons. And so on and so, so forth until the entire quote-unquote divine realm is produced. And then um, this divine realm has a name, it's called the Pleroma, which in translation means that which fills. And each of these 30 eons, moreover, if you look at their names, their, their names kind of correspond to attributes of the death, the Gnostic God. Uh, but while they are like attributes of the death, they are also personal beings. They have wills. They, um, it's not like they're just, you know, an attribute. Are you saying, uh, are you saying like the death? Yeah. I mean, not, not death, but death. Death. Okay. Yeah, D-E-P-T-H. Yeah. yeah, just this indescribable death. That was his word for the Supreme Being. Um, and uh, anyways, as I was saying, these eons that are emanations of the death, they um, have wills about them, and that's an important note because what happens is the youngest eon, the last of the 30 eons, whose name is Sophia, meaning wisdom, has a kind of fall and does something she's not supposed to. Yeah. Um, and what she does is she has like this sort of passionate desire to comprehend the incomprehensible, the depth. And obviously that's impossible, so she just falls into this passion, and out of this passion, Sophia produces yet another, this time imperfect eon, spiritual being. Um, and I kind of, my word for this eon is sort of a quasi-eon. Uh, the name that the Gnostics gave it was Akamoth, you don't need to remember that, but it's just a, uh, this spiritual being that is somehow imperfect and outside of the divine realm. Now, Sophia goes on, the, the remaining eons get together, and they figure out some way for her to get sort of readmitted to the Pleroma, because she got ousted when she did this. Uh, and that's a long story we don't got to get into. Um, but her quasi-eon that she emanated remains in darkness. Uh, the words that Irenaeus used were darkness and vacuity. She's ignorant of her divine origin, and so she wanders about in ignorant passions, and again, to make sort of a long story short, out of these passions, she eventually produces matter, or the material universe. Now that's a very important idea of Gnosticism, that there's this spiritual universe and a material universe, and they are in opposition. Spiritual is good, created matter is evil. And these guys are like, spiritual and spirit and matter are in, in like perpetual eternal Conflict. So her quasi eon produces the matter. Produces a, the material universe. 
And does he have a name? The quasi, you have a name? Uh, her name was Akamai. Akamai. It's feminine. Um, okay. Uh, that was the name, at least for the Don I don't know if it's consistent across all. Akamai. How do you spell that? A C H A M O T H. A C H A M O T H. Akamai. Anyways, so she goes on, and to make another long story short, out of uh, out of this. Well, not out of the, the material universe, but somehow, some way, she produces yet another being. This time, not a spiritual being, uh, sort of a, but it's sort of like a quasi god, so to speak. And this being is called the demiurge. Now, the Valentinians say, okay, this, the demiurge is not spiritual, and he's not material. He's kind of in between. He's animal. I'm not going to explain that, but Atomo um, produces the demiurge. Anyways, what you can kind of pull away from this is that they're making a lot of stuff up. And you don't really know necessarily where it comes from. You can see they're kind of mixing things. Irenaeus spends a long time explaining, you know, what, what they believe. And then finally, after some time, Irenaeus says, you know what? I can be a Gnostic too. I'm going to be a Gnostic. Let me give you my version of what happened. And this is Irenaeus speaking here. He says, okay, it goes like this. There is a certain proarch. Proarch was another word for death as well. Royal, surpassing all thought, a power existing before every other substance and extended into space in every direction. But along with it, there exists a power which I term a gourd. And along with this gourd, there exists a power which again I term, uh, term utter emptiness. This gourd and emptiness, since they are one, produced, and yet did not simply produce so as to be apart from themselves, a fruit. Everywhere, visible, eatable, and delicious, which fruit language calls a cucumber. And along with this cucumber exists a power of the same essence, which again I call a melon. These powers, the gourd, utter emptiness, the cucumber, and the melon brought forth the remaining multitude of the delirious melons of Valentinus. Basically, he just starts making fun. And it, it's, it's justifiable. Um, you can see that these Gnostic teachers kind of just made it up as they were. They didn't have an authority. They didn't have a source. They just started making things up. And so finally, Irenaeus just makes fun of them. Um, but he, it's, you don't just make fun of them because you realize it's a serious threat, even as, as ridiculous as it may sound. Um, partly it's serious because the Gnostics claimed to be Christian in a sense. It was a Christian cult. We have Christian cults today, and what's specific about a Christian cult is it's not just you know some out there mystical philosophy or religion. It's something that claims to be, in a sense, the Christian doctrine, um, and so that has to be addressed. Now, where did this overlap with Christianity? Well, there's a couple things. One, many of the attributes of their death do correspond to the attributes of the true God, uh, so they're mixing stuff there. Another thing is that after Sophia fell, or sometime before, somewhere in the course of that. Um, the, the first eons decided to emanate what Valentinus calls Christ and the Holy Spirit, which were eons there to teach the other eons not to do the Soviet. Anyways, uh, later on still, Christ comes back into the Christ eon. Christ is an eon for the Gnostics. He comes back into the picture when he comes to earth. And the purpose of him coming to earth in, uh, in the person of Jesus, Jesus is to um, basically teach us human beings, the true spiritual knowledge that we need to escape this material universe we're all imprisoned in. Anyways, it's a long story, but we'll shorten it. 
Uh, one of the key things about that is they say when Christ comes to earth, he does not incarnate in human flesh. Because remember, material is evil, spirit is good. Right? So what they usually say is either one, he uh, just inhabited Christ, or Christ just inhabited the man Jesus, or he didn't actually become human, he just appeared. Uh, so some crazy things that they say. Uh, one of the other key things here that's really important uh, and really quite blasphemous and false. Remember how I said the demiurge created the world? Or, I'm sorry, the demiurge was produced out of Sophia. What the demiurge does is he goes on to take the material universe that was produced by Sophia and he creates the world that we know. And so what they do, the Gnostics do, is they equate the demiurge with the God of the Old Testament. And then Christ's coming is kind of depending on which Gnostic philosopher you're with, not Gnostic pope teacher you're with, um, the demiurge effectively becomes enlightened by Christ or something of that nature. He's not altogether a bad guy for most Gnostics. Um, what he is is he's usually seen as a sort of misguided, uh, oh, I think some people have said anti-hero, so to speak. Um, at any rate, it's a pretty cooked up fantasy. It has a lot of overlap with Christianity, and that's probably part of the reason why a lot of people in the churches were kind of led astray by it. But what its main points boil down to is basically this. We've, we mentioned it a few already. The spirit is good, matter is evil. Point number two, the God of the Old Testament is not really the high God. Uh, he's a lower being, and there's a higher God that you're supposed to know. Uh, number three, the highest God is in some other being, as we said, men ex who's expressed in, in these multitudes of eons. And then point number four, the basic Christian faith, what that does for people like us who believe the gospel, as it's plainly taught, what that does for us is it kind of gives us sort of a second-class condition of salvation. We are kind of delivered from damnation. But, point number five, the best people are the people who obtain this special highest form of knowledge, and those people eventually, through that knowledge, attain to the divine right. Why? Any questions at this point? A quick question. So, um, the Gnostics believe that same thing today? Uh, Gnostics, in, in this sense, don't necessarily maybe exist. Now, there are people who are starting to point to some parallels. Uh, the, uh, the editor of my copy of Eusebius, he actually points to a parallel where I think feminist theology is even starting to talk about Sophia again. So you see a lot of parallels, but Gnostics, as a, that exact, precise group of people, is pretty much a thing of the past now. But you will see their ideas cropping up here and there. I think Especially like some of the pluralistic stuff that they seem to match them. But this is what they believed in the second century. Um, Alright, why was this attractive? Why would something of this fantastic kind of error be able to entice so many people, even uh, Christians? Well, I think um, there are, depending on who, who you are, there are different things that attract for the cult leaders, like Simon Magus and Valentinus and others. Uh, there were a lot of immediate rewards. There was money. There was uh, obviously influence and prestige. We know that with Simon and, and Valentinus, there was also um, some immorality in it. They got women. Uh, uh, they often had uh, bad relationships, immoral relationships with their female disciples. That was something that they got into. Um, on the other hand, there were also Gnostics who went the other direction. 
and they were very ascetic, um, denying, they shunned sensual behavior in all forms. And um, the question still kind of remains, well, for these guys, and especially for disciples of these guys, what is, what's the attraction? Well, I think for us now, nowadays, kind of this, uh, this Gnostic universe, so to speak, sounds fantastic. It sounds far-fetched. It's probably up there in the level of the Marvel universe in some sense. It's hard for us to get into it. But I think at the same time, it still appeals to certain tendencies in human nature that are universal. Um, for one thing, we all want to be special. Uh, we all want to you know, sort of find meaning in our, in our lives. In a word, we all want relevance. And what better way to do that, many of us think, than to become members of a kind of elite group that has this special access, exclusive access, to the deepest, most hidden, most secret truths of the universe, quote-unquote. The most basic enticement, so therefore, I think, is Gnosticism has really been repeated over and over again throughout history. It's, it's come in, 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 in the form of countless cults that go by different names and have different specific doctrines about them. And, and in fact, many of the major religions of the world also have this in common. Uh, they also, you know, there's something about those religions that appeal to this, this desire in us. I remember I had a Buddhist friend once, and she was a, a staunch Buddhist, but she was also a, a major, uh, she, was, she was taking her, she was getting her master's degree in religion, so she was also kind of an expert on religion. And I remember her one time sort of saying about Christianity, kind of with a derisive chuckle, she said, oh, Christianity is so simple. And you know what? It actually is. It really is, in a certain sense. If you're acquainted with Buddhism, um, you may know that it can, in certain branches of it, um, it can be very esoteric, very complex, not unlike Gnosticism. Gnosticism, again, is very esoteric, very complex. Um, and that complexity kind of held up to the gospel. You can say, yes, the gospel is very simple. So, if you think about it, what's on offer, either with Gnosticism or Buddhism or anything else like it, is the idea that the most important truths are kind of inaccessible except to certain people by some exceptional means or method. And if you're one of those people who can get that knowledge, then you have much to be proud of. You have quite an achievement. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Mark 10, 14 through 15. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So what does the true God, the creator of the universe, require you to know and believe to be saved. And the fact is, it's incredibly simple. It's not super complex. A child, in fact, can receive it. And if, if we fancy that it must be too sophisticated for a child, then we won't receive it. We won't actually believe it. It's very simple. God says you're a sinner. 
You deserve to be damned, but here's my son who died for you. Here's my forgiveness and a place in my kingdom, and it's free. The reason people reject this doctrine is not because it's too complicated or too hard for us to wrap our minds around. In fact, very often the reason people reject is because it's just, just too simple for a lot of people. It's too simple. On the other hand, it might be offensive, and that's actually what Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty three. He says, to the Jews, a stumbling block, an offense to the Gentiles' foolishness. It's either too simple or it's too offensive. The true, it is true that God, who is, exists as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is in nature unfathomable and incomprehensible. That's true. And it's also true that if you were to spend your entire life or a thousand lifetimes as a theologian just searching the mysteries of God, you would never exhaust them. It's also true that you could you know, read the scriptures, Old and New Testament scriptures, a million times over, and you would always find with every reading, you would find deeper, more precious insights. But the point is that none of this is how you gain access to God. None of this is how you actually gain a saving knowledge of God. In fact, we could even go further. We know that it's true that you could get all of that and still be damned in the end, while at the same time, small little children like that are receivers to come Children who know only the most rudimentary, basic truths of the gospel. The treasures of deep knowledge in the mysteries of God are not what save us. They are what satisfy those who are saved. So the church, we know we have our relevance, not from some hidden, unrevealed truth, but actually, uh, we, we didn't earn it, for, for one thing. We didn't earn it through some path of wisdom-seeking or asceticism. And we definitely don't suppose, like Simon Magus did, that it could be bought in some secret heart. We have our relevance because we have a free gift from God. Uh, entrance into his kingdom by faith in Jesus. And we're also here to say, we're also relevant because we're here to say that that, all, that, that gift is still on offer to everyone who will believe. And I think as we keep the simplicity of the gospel in view, um, that's, that's where we'll protect us, the church, from falling into heresies like Gnosticism.